Welcome to The Second Degree, your double dose of depravity. It's me, Jack. I'm here with Lex. She's wearing another first degree piece of merch. You're always representing. Honestly, they're my favorite. They're my favorite, (laughs) except if I'm out in the world in Los Angeles and there's people around who I don't want to run into. And I'm always hoping they're like, maybe they won't know it's me. And then I'm like, if Uh, I'm wearing this sweatshirt, they know it's me. (laughs) I know. Well, that's like all of my clothing is basically either Jack Vanek merch, Lady Gang merch, or first degree merch. So like, no matter what I'm doing, I'm pretty obvious that it's me, but like... But That's I love okay. a comfy sweatshirt and I love to represent, you know? know. Like it's if, like being a little walking billboard. If you don't love yourself, who will, you know? But no one. Or whatever that saying is. No yeah, one. <laughs> you have to love yourself first before um, anyone else can love you. It's so true. All right, should we dive right in? Let's do it. So today's case takes us to Wednesday, November 7th of 1979. So we are going way back. So the top songs of the time were Heartache Tonight by the Eagles, Dim All the Lights by Donna Summer, and You Decorated My Life by Kenny Rogers. Right? In theaters, The Rose and Fiddler on the Roof had just been released. And on TV, people were watching The Dukes of Hazzard, The Facts of Life, and Knott's Landing. And in true crime news, four men known as the Bridgewater Four were found guilty of killing Carl Bridgewater in Stourbridge, England. So a little wrinkle for the brain there. And I know some people hate that saying, but I think it's going to stuck here. <laughs> I know. By the way, somebody put that on the stand on the Facebook group, I think. Maybe we need to talk about it on a killing time. But I was like, I, ouch. Ouch. Uh, That's you your go-to. That literally all the time. I know. So the setting for today's case is Santa Clara, California, and the first Spanish settlement was in 1769 until Americans invaded their territory in 1847, and the town of Santa Clara was established soon after. And Santa Clara is also the place where Alexis's mom went to law school. Santa Clara University. Wow. I went to her graduation. You did? Yeah, I was like three or something. Oh, cute. She was a late bloomer. (laughs) She took some years off to go to France before going to school. You know, that's what you're supposed to do, though. I know. Jealous. Oh, so good. So today, the area is now part of Silicon Valley. And also for today's case, it's important to note that Santa Cruz Mountains are close to the city. This mountain range is just over a 1,000 square miles of forests, watersheds, and cliffs. And with elevations of almost 3,800 feet, it's also a very vast area. Our story today begins with the Jozovich family. So they lived in Santa Cruz. And... This is about an hour from Santa Clara, which is kind of the central location of this story. So we've got husband and wife, Donald and Suzanne Josevich, and they had five children, all girls. And all of these sisters were athletic growing up. I can't imagine having five sisters, by the way. Like, Whoa. I can't it's imagine a big, anyone. that's a lot of feminine energy. And they all like to play softball. The most athletic of all the girls was the middle child, and her name was Linda Ann Josevich. And after high school, Linda attended De Anza College in Cupertino, California. And at just 19 years old, she thought she had her career path all figured out. She was interested in being a special education teacher and was working towards that goal with her education. And to make money while she was in school, she worked 
as a cashier at the Santa Clara Mervyn's department store. And think of this as like a 1979 version of Walmart or Target. And we're looking at pictures of Linda right now. Uh, She has blonde hair. She has like an athletic build. And one of these pictures, she has like the perfect Farrah Fawcett, sort of like a swoopy bang going on, but it's a side part, which I really appreciate. Like almost a little emo. She has great hair. Great hair. It's shiny. And these are all black and white photos, but she's just, she's got a look and she's got charisma. You can tell even just by looking at her. Yeah, for sure. So Linda was in school, working, hanging with her friends, and enjoying the things that she loved, you know, basically just living her best life. And this brings us to November 7th, when Linda arrived at her department store job to work her regular shift. And when she arrived, the workday was just a regular day. She punched in, did her job, and then around 7 p.m. that night, she took a dinner break and walked out of the store to her car. And the reason that she was going to her car was to get changed so that she could buy soda from a vending machine. And as Linda moved through the dark parking lot and approached her car, a man seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. He accosted Linda, grabbing her before hitting her repeatedly. Then the unknown man shoved Linda into her own car and snatched her keys from her. And then he speeds out of the parking lot as he kidnapped Linda. Right. So this is awful and horrifying and terrifying, if you can imagine being in Linda's position. And Linda's break was only supposed to be for 30 minutes. So... When she didn't return, her coworkers immediately noticed. 30 minutes turned into 45 and then into an hour. And her concerned colleagues eventually checked the parking lot only to realize that Linda's car was missing as well. So at first, her supervisors were probably irritated, wondering whether Linda may have just deserted her shift and decided she was done and not going to return. But this type of thing was so unlike Linda. She'd never shown any hint of irresponsibility or carelessness for her job. Eventually, they began to get so worried to the point where they called Linda's parents to see if maybe she just went home. And after a few rings on the phone, her parents answered and told the coworkers that no, Linda wasn't home and they hadn't seen her. So in terms of what Linda's parents knew, Linda had told them earlier in the day that she was going to go to work and then she was going to head to a friend's house for the night after her shift. So maybe that's where Linda was. Growing even more concerned, Linda's parents called this friend only to find out that Linda wasn't with her either. So, of course, remember, this is 1979. Times were much different. There weren't cell phones. There weren't ways to contact people who were out and about in the world. So there was no recourse in terms of reaching Linda directly, at least at that time. And to their dismay and horror, that night, Linda never returned at all. So people began to get extremely worried. By the next morning, there was still no sign of Linda. Searching for an explanation, her father called one of Linda's sisters, hoping Linda might have gone there for the night, but she wasn't there either. After 24 hours, nobody had heard from Linda, and growing more panicked by the minute, her family went to the police. But the officers told them that since Linda was an adult, the family had to wait 72 hours before filing the missing persons report. And we all know that when it comes to somebody that's missing, the first 24 or 48 hours are the most important to finding them. So to wait three days would greatly hurt their chances of finding Linda if she didn't come back on her own. Right. And Linda never did show up anywhere on her own. So after 72 hours, the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office did finally begin an investigation into Linda's seemingly inexplicable disappearance. The detectives interviewed her friends, her coworkers, and several customers of the department store, hoping that someone, anyone, had seen something. 
and the city of Cupertino announced a $14,000 reward for information leading to Linda's safe return. And Linda's family printed out flyers and dispersed them throughout the neighborhood, and volunteers across Santa Clara also organized search parties. But the search for Linda was like looking for a needle in a haystack because the road between Linda's home in Santa Cruz and her work in Santa Clara ran through the Santa Cruz Mountains. So she could have been anywhere across this mild of wilderness. Then on November 10th, a search party found Linda's car at a construction zone close to a medical center in San Jose, California. But why was it there? And where was Linda? San Jose is closer to Linda's college and job, but otherwise the location had no obvious connection to Linda or anyone she knew. And more concerning, her purse was found inside the car with all of its contents left on the floor of the car. Noticeably, any cash she had was also missing. And authorities searched Santa Clara for another two weeks until the search parties kind of started to fizzle out. At the time, the police had uncovered zero leads, and there was no other physical evidence they could go on. And while the sheriff's office did assume that Linda had met with some sort of foul play, they had nothing to help them propel the search for her forward, and the case started to go cold. And the weeks turned into months, and then the months turned into years. The family had lost all hope that Linda was still alive. Then more than 15 years later in 1995, a hiker in the Santa Cruz Mountains came across several bones near the Lexington Reservoir. Authorities were called and the remains were sent in for testing, and ultimately the bones were positively identified as belonging to Linda. Specifically, they were part of her lower jaw and some of her ribs. And while this discovery was heartbreaking, at least her family knew something. They had been left to spin in this purgatory for all of this time, so this was at least some sort of information. And during an interview, Linda's father said, we all knew that she was going to show up someday this way, which is just absolutely soul-crushing. Authorities said that if it were not for all the rain that they had that year, then the bones would have never been found. Right. So what do we have here? We have some answers, a horrible answer. Linda was no longer alive. The bones were proof of that. But the hope was at this point that maybe her remains could lend clues to the authorities and help them figure out how she was killed and perhaps even who was responsible. But if quick answers was what everyone was hoping for, that would not be the case. Nine more years passed before any more clues emerged. It was 2004 when Linda's skull and upper jaw were found in the area surrounding the reservoir, but the rest of Linda's body was never found. So Linda's family knew what became of their daughter, but they were still pained by the realization that the person who snatched Linda from this world had not been held accountable and maybe never would be. And given how much time had passed, hope was dwindling that this murderer's identity would ever be revealed. And the last thing they thought was that the truth would fall right into their laps. In 2007, almost 28 years after Linda vanished from her department store job, a California inmate named Terry Childs asked to speak with law enforcement claiming that he had a confession that he wanted to make. Terry wanted to confess to killing Linda. But to everybody's horror, Linda wasn't his only victim. In fact, Linda was one of 12 that Terry would ultimately confess to killing. This guy was a sadistic serial killer. And there were so many questions, like the obvious ones. Who, what, where, when, and how? And why? Well, to try to get to the bottom of all of these, you all know the drill. We got to go back. Terry Childs was born in Santa Clara County in 1955, and he was one of six children. 
And ironically, Terry's father was a bail bondsman, which means that he grew up learning a lot about police procedures and a lot about criminals, a lot about sentences, doing hard time, and convictions. When Terry was a teenager, he was introduced to drugs and alcohol at a relatively young age, which contributed to him dropping out of school. And soon after, he started dabbling in crime. His brothers were also known criminals too, which didn't help Terry stay out of trouble. In 1970, Terry was arrested for robbery. Then, during the 70s and 80s, Terry spent time in and out of prison for various drug and robbery charges. People who knew the family said Terry was a drug addict who didn't have a job. In fact, he never had a job. He couldn't hold a job down. This guy was a drifter, and he was a grifter. And there was speculation that he suffered from mental health problems also. However, he never sought treatment to get any conclusive confirmations about this. And by August of 1985, Terry was 29 years old. And at that time, he had a full-blown drug addiction. He was dating a woman named Maloney Hereford, and Maloney lived with a group of friends in Santa Cruz. And one of those friends was 17-year-old Lois Sagala, who went by her nickname Janine, which was her middle name. Terry spent a decent amount of time around Janine, and remember how we said he was addicted to drugs at the time. So these drugs were causing paranoia. And an implication of Terry's paranoia was that he became fixated around Janine. He falsely believed that she had two names because she was, quote, an undercover police informant. Terry's obsession with this idea grew, and he thought that Janine was trying to bust him for a recent cocaine robbery that he was involved in. So this is pretty wild thoughts that he was having, and slowly his paranoid delusion began to take hold of him. Right. And his paranoia culminated on one particular evening when Terry decided to drive Janine and Melanie to the Santa Cruz mountains. So he's like, hey, gals, we're going for a drive or something, right? He lured them on this drive under some false pretense. Then he eventually brought them to a remote spot in the woods before Terry, out of nowhere, shot Janine 15 times. Terry spared Melanie, but ordered her to help hide the evidence of what he'd done. So only a few days later, Janine's body was discovered abandoned in the woods, and the autopsy revealed that a 9mm pistol had been used to kill her. The autopsy also revealed that based on the placement of the gunshot wounds, Janine had tried to crawl away while she was being shot by the perpetrator. It's just awful. Then on August 22nd of the same year, Terry and Melanie were arrested on separate weapons charges. Authorities had discovered that they had a 10-inch artillery motor simulator. Mortars are portable barrels that fire explosive projectiles at short ranges. So this is a weapon of war used by the military and something a civilian should never have in their possession. And while they were both behind bars for having this weapon, the police started hearing rumors that Terry and Melanie were both involved in Janine's murder. In fact, witnesses came forward to say that Terry recently bought the same type of pistol that was used to kill Janine. So once Terry fell under suspicion, Melanie took the opportunity to flip on Terry. She didn't want to go down for what he did to her friend. And Melanie told the police what he'd done and that he threatened to kill her if she didn't help him hide evidence. And that's not all. Melanie also agreed to testify against Terry at trial. And that trial would commence in 1987. He pleaded not guilty and put forth his defense strategy. It was obvious, right? He was mentally ill. His defense brought in a neurologist who testified that it was Terry's drug abuse that caused him to develop 
said mental illness, paranoid schizophrenia, and that the drugs were exacerbating these delusions that he was having as a result of this mental illness. Right. And it's probably no surprise that the jury did not buy this. Terry was convicted of murder and given a life sentence with the possibility of parole in 2014. And it really is shocking that he was even offered the possibility of parole. Somebody took pity on this dude that he did not deserve. Because guess what was going on behind the scenes? So Terry had conspired with a friend and had planned to have said friend bring an automatic weapon into the sentencing courtroom and go out in a hail of gunfire. So Terry was really cool with dying, but he just wanted to bring down as many people as he could with him. Yeah. And we're looking at pictures of Terry. We see an old picture of him where he's still got like a thick head of dark hair. He's got a tattoo on his neck. Mean looking mofo, even back in the day. And we're looking at a more modern picture of him where he's bald, got a mustache. He's doing like a sad face. He has like downturned lips, like doing a cartoon frown, but he looks like an evil mofo. Oh, yeah. He's one of those people that just like has those complete black eyes, like totally sociopathic glare in his eyes. Absolutely. And so while Terry was behind bars, he continued to lean into his propensity towards violence. In 1996, he tried to kill again when he attempted to assassinate another inmate. As a result, the California Department of Corrections said he should be transferred to Pelican Bay State Prison, which is the toughest high-security detention center in the state. This type of prison is for very violent criminals who require isolation and special attention to keep other people around them safe. But Terry wanted to avoid being relocated. He liked the cushy prison where he was at the time. So he wrote a handwritten letter to the Santa Cruz attorney asking to make a deal. He agreed to confess to 11 additional murders that he claimed to be responsible for in exchange for being able to stay at his current prison and not be transferred to the more high security one. And he also wanted to guarantee that he wouldn't face the death penalty for any of these crimes that he was confessing to. What I hate that like these guys try to bargain for info about murders they committed. It's just like you deserve the death penalty even more. Like for, I know. for being the kind of piece of shit who wants to leverage this against these families and the attorneys. Yeah. It's like, I'll confess to more crimes as long as you don't put me in a high security prison and I'll confess to more crimes as long as you don't put the death penalty on me. It's like, dude, this is literally the opposite of how things go, but okay. So Terry was self-serving until the very end. And it's probably no surprise that he would go on to confess that part of the reason that he confessed and owned up to everything was because he wanted to be famous for all the crimes that he committed. So the lawyer who represented Terry for over two decades also later confessed to the fact that he believed that his client was, in fact, a serial killer. I guess that's no surprise to anybody. And Terry was no doubt capable of killing everyone in all of the unsolved cases that he claimed to be connected to. The state ultimately agreed to the proposed plea deal, and after it was signed by both parties, authority went public about Terry's claims, and media reports discussing Terry as a possible serial killer began to circulate. And eventually, and finally, Terry would ultimately detail what had happened to Linda Josevich back in 1979. And he said that following the murder, that Linda's ghost had haunted him since the day he did this, and said that Linda was eating up his brain. Like, I don't know if this is remorse or part of his paranoid delusion or him trying to make a sick justification of not feeling bad about it. Like, it's pretty, it's a pretty ugly way to talk about someone whose life you stole. Either way, Terry also claimed to want to ask for forgiveness from the Josevich family. 
Ultimately, during his confession, Terry said Linda's murder began with an argument he had with his mother that night. So he's one of those special pieces of shit who gets mad at his mom and has to go out and take it out on an innocent woman just trying to have her college job. It's like truly, truly pathetic and disgusting. So after this argument with his mom, he was so upset that he left and just started walking around Santa Clara to burn off some steam. And that's when he came across Linda in the Mervyn parking lot. After he kidnapped her, Terry drove to Santa Cruz Mountains, and once he was at the reservoir, Terry dragged Linda out of the car, continued to hit her, and strangled her with his belt, and eventually stabbed her repeatedly, which is so sad. And after her death, Terry parked her car at the construction site and abandoned it there. He said he rolled the windows down so the dust from the construction would obscure any possible evidence inside. And a few days later, Terry even returned to Linda's body and covered it with leaves to hide it from being discovered potentially, which I just hate this guy. Hate him so much. After Terry confessed, prosecutors believed that Terry was telling the truth, and this is because many of the details matched the evidence that they had recovered. Terry was given another life sentence for the murder of Linda, but this time it was without the possibility of parole. And her family was finally able to get the answers that they both needed and dreaded. And at the very least, they now know what happened to Linda. And they were glad that the one that was responsible for her death was finally going to be held accountable. The other cases that were tied to Terry includes a murder he committed in July of 1979, months before Linda's murder. That's when Terry abducted, raped, and stabbed 32-year-old Rulin McGill in Reno, Nevada. Rulin was on her way to go shopping when Terry attacked her and left her in a ditch to die. Sadly, Rulin's husband was the one to come across her body while trying to find her after she disappeared. That is a nightmare. Then in 1984, Terry lured 28-year-old Joan Mack into his car. He drove her to Seascape Beach, California, and on a cliffside, he tied, gagged, and stabbed her before leaving her to die. Then in 1985, Terry shot a 23-year-old named Christopher Hall because allegedly Christopher failed to pay back a drug debt. So here's where things get a little strange with this guy. So all along with all these confessions, this psycho is making, the police weren't just taking Terry's word for it. They were corroborating his claims with evidence taken from each of these scenes during the original investigations. And soon it became clear that at least some of his confessions were lies. And it really did appear that Terry, beyond, you know, trying to get what he could out of the criminal justice system and leveraging deals by making these admissions, he was also trying to gain notoriety and become famous. And he had gone so far as to even claim that he killed his father's fiance, but that had long been ruled a suicide. And there was no way he could have done that. So he was just grasping for the attention in some of these cases, right? Because the evidence did match the murder in Linda's case during his confession. So we don't know how many people he killed and how many of these things were lies, especially given how long ago they had occurred. But we know that he committed some of these crimes and it was confirmed. This guy truly is uh, the epitome of piece of shit. Yeah. And wanting to be famous for doing such awful, heartbreaking things is also, you know, um, says a lot about his soul and where it belongs. You know, Um, I hate men like this. Men like this are the reason why women are told to like walk with their car keys in their hand and carry mace, like random abductions, random killings like this are every woman's nightmare. I mean, any murder is, but this is like Ted Bundy nightmare stuff. And it just breaks my heart that anyone had to suffer. 
because of this man, you know? I know. I hope this man rots in hell. It really is. Yeah. It's that special, special type of piece of shit that it's like, he's doing it for the fame. It's like the BTK of it all. And it's so extra disgusting. So, um, yeah, I hope he's rotten in hell. Definitely. And for all of his crimes, Terry was behind bars with a total of five life sentences. So he's not getting out. He was able to avoid the death penalty and was never transferred to a high security prison, which bothers me, but whatever. Um, Either way, he passed away recently in February of this year, 2023, at Salinas Valley State Prison. So he's off the earth, dancing with the devil like a psycho. And he's not going to be hurting anyone else, including the inmates around him or, you know, potentially corrections officers, because he's the kind of guy who will just keep killing. Absolutely. Yeah. Somebody that should never have seen the light of day ever. So crazy, crazy, crazy. Well, um, thank you all for being with us on this lovely Tuesday. Yeah. And thank you for submitting this case. Please keep sending them. Send us your first degree stories. Send us your Patreon recommendations. We want to bring you what you want. And we love learning and digging into the research for these cases just as much as you like hearing about them. So thank you. You're helping us out and putting wrinkles in our brain. Sorry if you hate that <laughs> saying. I, I, we need to come up with a new one. So we're taking suggestions for that too. I guess we'll, we should come up with like a inside joke version of it that like only the firsties will understand. So absolutely. We're on that. Send us, your, send us your ideas. We will see you in the regular feed tomorrow and Thursday and Friday. So for Forever. another week of first degree almost every day. Yes. We'll see you then. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.